This podcast is produced by Arts Council England. For more content like this, visit artscouncil.org.uk or soundcloud.com forward slash England. Okay, we're going to call this uh, session to begin. Um, and today, this theme, just to make sure that everyone knows they're in the right room, is artists and young people. Um, and I'd like to welcome you. And uh, we're going to start with a little bit of context and then uh, some presentations from our panelists. And then we're going to you know, quite swiftly move into an interactive dialogue with, with you, our audience. Um, so my name is Baba Israel. I'm the Artistic Director of Contact Theater in Manchester. And uh, this is a topic which is very important to me as an individual artist um, and as, so, as someone who runs an organization that really is focused on young people, um, not as beneficiaries, but as collaborators. And uh, Contact as an organization was reimagined in 1999 uh, as a theater space, as a venue space that would work with young people in collaboration and, and that young people would be really seen um, not as people who would come to take workshops, although that happens, but as people who make decisions and have a leadership role in the organization. Um, so this topic is really important to me and to the organization that I run. Um, can I just quick, get a quick show of hands? If, you're, if you are a, practice, a practicing artist working directly with young people, or uh, let's start with, if you're a practicing artist of, of any discipline, okay? If you, are a, a, if you are a facilitator or working directly with young people as a practitioner, okay? If you are uh, running an, an arts organization or involved with the kind of structure of an arts organization, is there anyone that we haven't uh, included? Please shout it out, just so we get a sense of who's the room. Anything that, any kind of voices? Well, we'll find out more as we go through. Um, I think for me, uh, some of the themes that have been coming up around this, 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 this idea of artists and young people, looking at the blog, I don't know if anyone's had a chance to look at the blog, but there was some comments made by Hannah Nicklin and Daniel Bai around the importance of, um, of spaces of exploration for young artists and um, spaces to, uh, to find their form, to find their skills, to find their voice. And one point that was made, and this came up today in the morning session as well, the, the challenge and changes in tuition structures at university. Um, and how is that going to, and, and the issue of class, and the issue of, uh, of access to that space. And, and Hannah talked about the importance of academic space as a space for artistic exploration and growth. So that's kind of one theme that's on my mind. Um, another theme that came up earlier this morning, um, brought up by uh, Boston and also by Jonesy D. More and more young artists are developing across disciplines, but what about the complementary roles? What about the producers? What about the people working in marketing? What about the project managers? Where is the capacity to take on those young artists and give them the infrastructure that they need? And I think that's a, quite an important theme that even in our quick conversations we really resonated with. Um, and then another, another thing that, that we think a lot about at Contact is that there's, there's some young people who have a very clear trajectory. You know, they either have strong family support or they're involved at an early age in structured um, artistic development through school or through um, higher education or through conservatories. Um, and they're on a path to that kind of creative development. And then there, there are some young people who maybe don't so neatly connect to that structure um, and may for a variety of reasons to do with class or to do with... Um, Location or geography, or um, you know, there may they be maybe live in environments where there isn't a, a, a cultural provision, there isn't an opportunity, um, and and sometimes I think there's also very specific funding streams which target specific groups of young people, but sometimes also leave those groups in isolation. Um, and I'm really interested. And one thing at our at Contact we find is that a lot of our programs we're seeing an interesting mix 
of, of young people from different cultural backgrounds, different class backgrounds, young people who are involved in higher education, and young people who have not had any connection to formal education, but all have a, a, a shared passion for artistic expression. And I think that's one thing, that kind of danger of segregation of communities of young people is a theme that, that I'm thinking about. So um, I think that's some of, some of the topics that have started to come up within the, within the online platform and then within the, the discussion this morning. And I'm also really excited to see what our two panelists will bring to the table and what, uh, what topics they might raise. And then I think quite swiftly we'll come to you as a group. So I'm going to introduce our, our two panelists. And I'll give you a little bit of a context of some of the, the, the kind of overview of the questions that they're responding to. So in terms of what they're going to be responding to in their presentations, they're looking at how did you make your way? What is your journey? How, you know, both of them have achieved quite a lot as artists. Um, so what is, what is a little bit of their story and their journey? How have they made their way? Um, how was talent spotted and developed? So we've talked about access, right? People have a, if people have that spark, if they have that creativity, how is it spotted and, what, and how is it channeled so that it actually has an infrastructure to support and develop it? And then, and then the question that's, I think, really key to this session, which is how could more young people get a chance to get involved in the arts? And there was something already uh, David Escar brought up around this, this, is there a tension between access and excellence um, and kind of mass, participa mass participation, mass involvement, and, um, and very limited numbers of people developing? Is, is there a tension? Is there a contradiction there? So those are some of the questions that have come up. I'm going to um, introduce each panelist one at a time and let them speak for about six to eight minutes. And then we'll, we'll hear from both, and then we'll open up to the group. So we're going to start with James Cousins, who's a choreographer. Um, James trained at London Contemporary Dance School, where he was awarded the Robert Cohen Award for Most Promising Dance Artist. Upon graduating, James performed internationally with Matthew Bourne's Swan Lake, including a four-week run in New York, as well as appearing in the 3D film version of the show. As a freelance uh, dancer, he has performed internationally, uh, whilst his own choreography has been performed across London, um, and abroad, including a performance at Buckingham Palace for the Duke of York's 50th birthday. In August 2011, James was announced as the winner of the inaugural New Adventures Choreographer Award. Could we please make welcome to James. Thank you. Um, I'm a dancer for a reason. I really hate public speaking, so excuse me if I'm really <laughs> um, So I guess I wanted to start with kind of my journey. Um, and I started dance when I was 11 years old. Um, started dancing in PE lessons at school and from there we had a great department, dance department at the school and they offered after school clubs which I went along to and it was me and about 30 girls and I was like oh it's okay I'll stick with it um, started doing a Saturday club um, which was me and about 200 girls uh, I'll stick with it um, and so I then started doing um, youth companies and that was really my training before I went to the place I was um, in a county company in lots of different youth companies I had lots of really great opportunities through that um, and actually a lot of the things I've done since have actually led, um, come from those experiences I had kind of in the youth dance. Um, so then I graduated from London Contemporary, as Barbara said, in 2010. Um, and since then, I've been extremely fortunate with the way my career's gone. And actually, um, this issue of space um, that has been brought up and having space to work, I've been extremely fortunate in being provided that space and having the opportunity to do that but I know for a lot of um, of my peers that hasn't been the case so um, I've been one of the fortunate ones and out of the 50 people who started in my year at college um, 34 of us graduated and one of us got a job um, and that's kind of the reality mm. of it and I think um, 
since then, obviously, more people have got a job. There's probably half a dozen to ten people working as a performer or a choreographer from my year. Um, but considering the number who started, that's not very many. And actually, people aren't just solely doing that. You have to have other jobs to provide it. And, I mean, I think the main thing, I think Johnsy brought it up, that was really interesting is this idea of you need the people, the producers and the managers and the support around you to make um, it happen. And I think people going into the industry um, who are going into vocational training need to be made aware that you know, you're not probably going to come out a dancer like in the reality of it. Um, you, you have to be realistic, and I think the vocational schools have to be realistic in telling people that. Um, my friend is actually um, on the panel for London Contemporary Dance School Auditions and sits um, interviews the people coming. And one of the questions is, oh, what do you want to do when you graduate? And they all say, oh, I'm going to be in a company. And realistically, that's not going to happen. So how can we actually train people to have other skills? I mean, even though I've been really um, lucky in actually being able to survive off choreographing and dancing, I've still had to have a huge range of other skills to keep myself going, have to manage my own, yeah, have to manage my own company, do budgets and all these things and learning along the way. But if you can be taught them sooner, then that's, I don't know, I think that's something quite important. Uh, Mute Dance England have a scheme called Stride that um, champions for young dance leaders. And I think more things like that need to um, come about. So that's that point. Um, Anyway, as I said, my story's um, quite unique, and I feel very fortunate to be here talking to you all today, but um, one thing that I always say in things like this is, if I'd gone to a, the school I should have gone to in my catchment zone, uh, secondary school, I probably wouldn't be here at all. Um, I was very fortunate. My school had two dance teachers that had a purpose-built dance studio. Um, dance was in the curriculum. We had guest artists coming in every term to work with us, and we got a really good understanding of what it was to be a dancer. Um, but the school half a mile down the road had nothing. It didn't have a dance teacher at all. There was no dance in the school. And actually, this like sort of pocketed, um, sort of, uh, the pockets of uh, dance are actually quite common. And although over the last 10 years, um, dance has increased in schools and you know the number of people doing GCSE I think there's a statistic from 2001 to 2006 it increased by 150% and A-level um, students the number of students doubled um, is amazing and there's so many more people participating in it and dance is now in I think 96% of schools or something but still only 15% of teachers are dance specialists and so that leaves 85% of students being taught by non-dance specialists teachers and I mean you wouldn't have your you wouldn't want your kids being taught English or maths by a dance teacher so why should it be the other way around I mean the other statistic is 49% of boys aren't allowed to dance in school so I mean it's a miracle I'm here talking to you at all but because um, of the way PE is split with um, separate sex boys go off and do rugby where the girls dance mm. so it's that imbalance needs to be addressed I think in order to give everyone the opportunity and to find um, the activity that's right for them. Um, there are two um, other points I'd like to raise. Um, the, one of them is the uh, kind of 
trend at the moment for cross-art collaboration, um, which I'll come on to in a second, but first I'll talk a little bit about Arts Council's focus on funding regions rather than a national level. Um, I benefited as a young artist a lot from uh, Youth Arts England and its national dance programme, and through it I met a lot of like-minded people and people with the same aspirations as me and who shared the same ambitions and dreams. And I think when I was in my own region, I didn't. I was at the top and I kind of reached a point point. I was like, oh, what's next? And being exposed to that before I actually got to vocational school and seeing the bigger picture at a younger age um, really inspired me and raised my aspirations and most importantly challenged me um, and introduced me to my peers and people that I could have a conversation with on the same level. Um, and I think having a national program is very important in raising the profile of the art form and it encourages young people to aim higher and aim beyond and I think this talk of technology earlier on that is possible like you can see things that are going on in different areas of the country now in a different way um, but still I think actually meeting people is an important thing and that's something we shouldn't forget um, dance is and I mean you're going to hear from composer in a minute so you get a different point of view but dance I think is still quite behind other art forms and and when you compare it with music which gets National Youth Music gets 10 million a year and um, Youth Dance England gets nothing so that's the re reality of it and going on to cross collaboration if we are to collaborate equally with other artists we need to be on a par with them and we need to be able to collaborate with them equally and train dancers and choreographers to a high enough standard to be able to collaborate with exceptional musicians or artists or sculptors or whatever who they are. Um, so talking in terms of identifying talent, I think it needs to be done early and there's schemes like the CAT scheme are amazing at pushing talent um, but also there needs to be opportunities for everyone to find the art that's right for them. Um, each art form is, I don't know, I, w I started with music when I was six, but actually dance has spoken to me more than music ever did. I mean, I'm so glad I had that musical training, but when I found dance, it spoke to me in a completely different way and I could connect with it on so many more levels. Um, and so the opportunities need to be there for everyone to find the um, path that's right for them and be able to I think I think specialising is important and then but also keeping you know that overview of collaborating to be able to you know push it forward I'll wrap it up there but great thank you, <laughs> thank you James um, yeah please J James actually said at the beginning that he was concerned that his statement was be quite negative but I found it very sobering and I think quite realistic and I think that's a healthy place to begin a dialogue just a couple of themes I want to pull out that we'll come back to I think this idea of gender issues and, and gender divisions I think is something that comes across a lot of art forms and something that's really interesting and you know that we may hear again in, in, in the conversations yeah, we're hearing that it's the opposite in composing. And, and it's something that we, in the projects that we recruit for, we really notice where are the trends of, you know, what genders go to what art form and how can we break that open. I think, you know, from James, we heard about a very structured journey. And, um, and, and we, you know, Liz Fogan talked about that sense of art being a continuum 
that starts from a very early age and travels all the way through. And, and what about that foundation and that you, you were lucky enough to be in a place where there were proper resources, both in terms of the, the teaching and the, the facilities that you had, and that there are real challenges where there are some places where there isn't the expertise in the art form and there isn't the physical space. Um, I think some other interesting points around this idea that it's important to develop locally and regionally, but there's something also very powerful about young people collecting na connecting nationally and internationally in terms of raising aspiration, in terms of um, really uh, building momentum. There's something about when you get out of, out of your own neighborhood, your own zone, and you connect with other young artists. So I think that's a really important call. Um, and I think this idea that about being realistic and holistic in terms of how young people develop, that sometimes in higher education or even within arts organizations, there's such a focus on the creative discipline and that there's no preparation for the reality of the sector. And so you have a lot of young people really walking into a, a kind of trap um, where they're unprepared for the, for the responsibilities or do not have the, the kind of collaborators and producers or partners to, to help them actually transition to the professional world. And, and that transition from participation to actually being a practicing artist, I think is a really important, uh, some really important themes to begin. So we're going to build on that now and come to from dance and move to music to, uh, to Shiva Fesherecki. Did I get it right? Cool. Thank you. Um, now, Shiva is a composer and a, a, pi a pioneer in, I love this phrase, post-DJ turntablism. Turntablism is an art form close to my heart. She has performed at venues such as the South Bank Center, the Barbican, the Roundhouse, and King's Place, and has had works performed by the London Philharmonic Orchestra, uh, London Philharmonia, London Sinofietta, uh, and London Contemporary Orchestra. She is a scholar and graduate of the Royal College of Music under Mark Anthony Turnage and has won some of the most prestigious composition awards, uh, including the Royal Philharmonic Composition Prize and the BBC Young Composer of the Year, got some powerful people on the panel here, mm -hmm. with the first piece she ever wrote. She also won the Theodore Holland Intercollegiate Award, an award given to the most outstanding composer studying in the UK. Can we please welcome Shiva? Um, I think I'll just uh, start off by saying two things. A, I'm going to read off a sheet <laughs> because I don't want to miss any crucial points. Mm -hmm. okay. And the other reason, the other thing I was going to mention is does anyone know what Pecha Kucha means? Yes. Oh, okay, so there are people. <laughs> I, I, you know, I've been in conversation, you know, do you know what Pecha Kucha means? Went on the Urban Dictionary definition, I went on the uh, uh, Wikipedia definition of the two completely different things. I can tell you they're definitely two completely <laughs> different things. Anyway for speech. Thanks so much to the Arts Council for allowing me to speak today. I thought I'd start with a rather blunt statement. For whatever reason, I don't know, I'm here today in substantial debt. <laughs> for an artist and a young person, this is both in very intimidating. But that is the price you pay for pursuing, writing, performing, getting your art out there relentlessly. I think I'll start by giving you an example of a work of mine which encompasses this idea of getting one's work out there, so to speak. I wrote a concerto for Guitar Hero and Ensemble, which is originally a video game. I didn't use Guitar Hero to be gimmicky or media friendly. I used it because I saw opportunity in what was around me, 
to experiment, to apply classical technique, thought, philosophy, and rigor to what is simply music as a game. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote the concerto, I curated it, and I organized it, and then I found a way to fundraise it through my own initiative. This was not easy. When the piece is uploaded onto YouTube not too long from now, it is estimated to have an audience of about 4 million people, which will mean that it may become documented as one of the most listened to pieces of music regardless of genre. For contemporary classical music, or whatever you like to call music that isn't Radio 1 playlist, this will be a rare opportunity. I believe YouTube, for me personally, is an environment which will do my piece and its performance justice. And, of course, I aim for the piece to do the, do the YouTube channel it will be uploaded onto justice, as it is a channel which is unique and innovative in its own right, as well as run by two of the most inspirational young artists I have ever met. This is why this specific YouTube channel boasts over half a billion views. Of course I'm going to take advantage of that, you know, like, get some new sounds, some music out there to the masses, there'll be millions of people who've never come across this sort of music, you know. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, okay, down and now. I mean, I'm, I am currently in a legal battle to get the rights of my own piece back to me from a member of society who wasn't really involved in the project, but c'est la vie. My lawyer seems to be the most contacted person on my phone log, and he does cost a lot of money. However, the most positive in this specific, in this is that, that I got to learn that I can, have, can get some much needed support and encouragement in this time of need from fantastic organizations who look after all professional writers, such as Basker. Another positive is that I've learned from this experience, that I've learned from this experience, <sighs> this very hard experience, hard financially and emotionally. I've learned to read contracts a bit better, not be stabbed in the back by loved ones, and not to be unduly influenced as much. It has been character building. Anyway, back to the piece itself. To learn an instrument takes time, patience, and inevitable challenge. Guitar Hero, the new instrument I aim to introduce in this concerto away from just the game, can provide the feeling of music, making music with its own challenges, but without the expensive education and resources one would normally expect with learning an instrument. I thought, why not use this? Why not see what happens? Guitar Hero is a great example of a resource which gives us all the chance to see, read, hear, and learn more than ever before, which we should exploit and take into consideration when creating our art. At this point, I'd like to thank Ivan Hewitt at The Telegraph for shamelessly writing a very daring feature on my concerto a feature about an obscure experimental piece by a left-field composer, a feature twice as long as the next big, biggest feature, which was on Michael Bublé. <laughs> this shows it does happen. <laughs> um, uh, okay. 
We live in an age of ever-increasing speed and complexity. That also increases the amount we miss. Considering all of this, it goes without saying, I hope, that our priority when creating art should always be to do something that is honest to ourselves and never compromising whatsoever and to just get on with it and do it. Fundamentally, in the organisation of art, we need to ask ourselves, how do we reach the wider culture without patronising anyone? How do we unlock brave and exciting new pieces that seem to be almost hidden and therefore in instead ultimately embrace all roots? I think as an, as an artist, you respond, use and manipulate the world around you. My example is using YouTube for my latest concerto. I'm trying to live in the world I find myself in, and when that piece reaches people who have never heard music like that before, I hope it inspires them to listen to it more. There are many other young artists who are doing similar things to me, more than ever, I see a strong group of emerging artists making a large impact. This should be acknowledged, embraced, and we should certainly have faith in this and its individuals. In the words of Sean Parker, founder of Napster, nobody likes taking orders from a 12-year-old in a suit. 20-year-old. No one likes taking orders from a 20-year-old in a suit with shine shoes but this is our time and people need to just get used to it. We can afford to be magpies now. You can listen to all types of music, watch all types of drama, but sometimes what they, we don't do is push more challenging art as much as entertainment does. But of course we certainly should. Like Radio 1 proudly say, in new music we trust. So, I know that every type of music is not for everyone, but I think it is important that we trust young artists who perhaps naturally write in a way that new audiences engage with and thrive in, and therefore give everyone, everyone the chance to experience a lot more variety and then dismiss it if they so wish. That's how I've got my music out there. That's good for me, and I hope it's enriching for those who might not be exposed to it normally. Who knows, one day they may become the artists, increasing the population of the art world. But if they never see it, hear it, or consume it, then how could they? We have a responsibility to encourage and support this hope and idea. Earlier when I said I was in severe debt, that wasn't meant to sound as if I were bitter. <laughs> Instead, I thought it of a valuable thing to say, um, wait, sorry. Instead, I thought it of value to say what the personal price of being a young artist can be. Is it, is, it isn't easy, not at all. Is it worth it? Yes. However, should it come at such a price? I think not. I've been lucky to receive generous grants and supports from many organizations and people of which I am extremely thankful for. We live in an age of financial un uncertainty. I don't think any of us here really understand how or why it happened. But there is one thing I seem to understand, and that's that we have to justify the arts more than ever. Justify? 
This is not healthy. It is easy for people to say that the arts do not contribute, that they are too removed, but art does contribute massively. It is a common trope that modern art is collected, funded and sold by the rich. That is not the case. Look at those who walk around the Tate Modern. You see so many different strands of society. Art can enrich life, but some arts are needlessly and detrimentally hidden away, even though they do not seem to be exclusive to me in any nature. And that can put off the young, like we have something to be ashamed of, as if we need to test the water first very unconvincingly. Art isn't just for those who already experience it and already support it. And perhaps those who support the art should find new, perhaps unlikely, companions so that support is allowed to expand more. Go viral, so to speak. We must fight for more funding. We must show, you must show us that we are worth it. It may not be a tangible benefit, but then should everything have to show a tangible return? Surely timelessness is the very definition of art. What do we remember of previous times, societies and experiences, but their culture, their art? Only a few remember the political intrigues of Spartans and Athenians, but most know at least one Greek myth or one Aesop's fables. And who hasn't heard of King Arthur, Mozart, Romeo and Juliet? Or, to put it simply, almost everyone in this country knows what Green Sleeves sounds like. That piece by the ever-growing composer called Anon. So what I think is important when it comes to the issue of funding is that it must give those who are creating the time to work, the time to innovate, it isn't easy to write when you have no time to perfect a piece or to let creativity surge. Last year I wrote nine rather large new pieces for, from pieces for experimental DJ sets to music for the historic handbells of the Whitechapel Bell Foundry to solo and ensemble music for the London Sinfonietta to a piece for six grand pianos and six chaos pads. And then finally, a concerto that I curated and organized myself. Just I'm not 30 more seconds if you can. Okay. <clears throat> I'm not sure I can carry on like this in terms of time, sanity, or money. <laughs> There's so much to say, so little time. Um, okay. So I'm just going to say last thoughts um, can anyone really justify a need for concerts over hospitals? No but as human beings we do need the arts for some bizarre inherited genetic natural reason and so they exist <laughs> and they are so full of contradictions and how we professionalise it brings again so many contradictions but today I spe speak to you as a successful independent young person in the arts but it isn't easy and you do question and you do get angry at being or at least feel used am I glad I compose yes am I glad to be a composer I don't know 
<laughs> so the title of this session is Artists and Young People, and we need to we need funding, but we don't need clauses. We need to stop clarifying arts and genres. Has anyone thought of how rid ridiculous this oxymoron is? I guess what I'm trying to say is that as a young artist, I want to experiment and mess up and be angry and then learn and then fail again, that and then doubt myself a bit and then succeed gloriously one more time. I know I can do it. I know that I can fulfill my responsibility to art. Can I do it alone? Of course not. And if you value young artists as much as you've made me feel by giving me the honor to make allow me to even speak today, then I faith you'll listen. Thank you. All right. Open up to the floor, but um, a, a, another sobering beginning around the, the debt um, that many artists, and I know where I come from this, in the States, I mean, the, particularly those in the academic institutions, I really caution you to, you know, to the dangers of high uh, academic prices. There are people graduating with huge, huge debt, but I think it's also something that, that, that young people are facing more and more in the UK. But to jump from debt to, to uh, the spectrum of art as a bizarre inherited genetic reality, I think that's a, a really poetic statement. But some other practical things that came up around um, young people understanding it, things like intellectual property, um, dealing with lawyers, dealing with contracts, that those are other practical realities. And I've seen many young artists uh, face those challenges when, when they don't have the proper knowledge or proper representation. Also, something about young, about young artists uh, thinking about their audiences from the, from the inception of their work and thinking about their venue and that for really, digital is not a, is not a question or it's not a, it's not a kind of, well, are we using digital? Is it an unknown? No, digital is just part of how many young artists create and think. And so YouTube is just a valid, valid venue as a, as a concert hall. Um, and, and I think that we live in a really interesting time where there is, in a way, this, this kind of utopian moment where anyone can upload their creative content, whether it be video of dance or music or theatrical performances that have been you know, modified. But there is also a, an oversaturation of information. There is so much content. I see people on Facebook begging people to download music for free. You know? I mean, there really is just this massive oversaturation of content. Um, and then, uh, then I think there's something else around um, th the danger of, of being patronizing and how if we're going to open up and get people involved, we have to be very careful not to be condescending or patronizing. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that, you know, that th this, this notion of time, that we need time to create so that art can then become timeless. And I think those are some, some powerful themes. So with that said, I think one thing I want to say for us as a group, we're actually off the hook because we don't have to come up with any solutions in this morning session. We just have to air the issues, and in the afternoon, the solutions have to be found. So the pressure <laughs> is not on us, but I think the pressure is on us to be very honest mm -hmm. And to really, and I think we've felt that from both panelists, that it's not just around the positives, but what are the real challengeable challenges that are facing young artists and the people who want to support them. So can we break it open now with some, some discussions, some conversations? Let's get the issues out in the open. Um, what, what, what hasn't been said and what needs further reflection in terms of getting the issues around artists and young people out so that they can be solved this afternoon? Yes. And can you please say your name and where you're from, if you're from an arts organization or... Me, Herrick from uh, Box Clever Theatre Company. We work out of the Oval uh, okay. in London, and our focus is theatre for young people. There, there's, we've we've talked about money, but there's um, there's a there's a real uh, sort of hidden issue, if you like, which is making sure that once a young artist has emerged or is emerging, there is paid work. Yeah. 
And Box Clever has always positioned itself as a company that has been there for young artists and actors and directors. And we've taken risks. Gecko Theatre Company, for the m- at, at the moment, the three key artists in that, Amit Lahav, Dave Price, Rhys Jarman, have all come out of Box Clever. We've taken the risk. We're small, we can do that. I would challenge the bigger buildings, the yes. big organisations, not just to have very fancy schemes for emerging artists, put the money where your mouth is and pay people regularly, not just on a one-off scheme to cover your bus fare, but actually employ young artists, take the risk. Yeah. It, it's harder for the big buildings to do so. Iqbal Khan, who's at, at Stratford, came out of Box Clever. You'll pay him now to direct... Uh, much Ado About Nothing at Stratford, you wouldn't have done five years ago. That's where companies like us come in. Mm. But it's a real issue about mm. once you've emerged, how do you sustain the young artists, which is pay them industry rates for the work they do on a regular basis so they can practice their craft? Okay, great, great. So a call to actually invest and put the money in, in where your mouth is, yeah. Because I think one thing that came up for Boston, ha- there's a lot of young artists, they, if they can only focus on the art if they have the resources to do so. Mm-hmm. So at a certain point, we have to move on from just the participation to actually paying people. Without wanting to step aside from young people at all, because I work in participation, work with young people, um, as my job, I have a, a, a point that's just kind of been raised by yourself from Box Clever, is actually how do... Larger organisations, I come from the Mighty Creatives, which is one of the bridge organisations, soon to be. How do we support the smaller organisations, actually, so that we can allow you to continue this work, whereas the larger organisations might actually find it more challenging? Obviously, we can support them as much as possible, but where is our place, I guess, to support you so that you can continue to do it and so you can do more of it, where... Because you are obviously more likely to do it, I guess. So that's my, my question. So a question around the relationship between large and small organizations. So, yes. Hi, Nas- Natalie Wilson from Theatre Centre. Um, I suppose in answer to that, uh, my, my answer would be um, by working with us to identify where the work can go and placing it, as from what I understand the bridge organizations are to do, is to place the work within those areas that you want it to place and to sort of work in, cl- in collaboration with those small companies like, like Box Clever, like ourselves, um, and not bypass, um, not bypass those companies in order to put the big companies in those places because, as we all know, the small companies are more mobile and can get into those smaller areas where that engagement needs to happen in a way that a big company can't. Um, I just also wanted to make a point uh, regarding James's uh, piece. I think it's really important that we do look at what Liz Court said, the continuum of education. And I think your development as an artist, was the school um, part of that was, was key. And we really need to sort of keep talking about what well, the arts in schools, what that's happening in terms of the professional development of artists as a continuum. And and taking away funding from higher education, arts fundings, is really going to affect the teaching in schools when arts graduates aren't necessarily going into teaching, teacher training, because they might not be funding or may, not have, may have deficient subject knowledge because they can't afford to take those courses, mm. etc. So I think there's, a, there's an, a whole debate around the arts and schools as well. Great. see a variety of hands. Let's start here and then come back there. Yeah. 
Uh, hi, my name is Kyla Booth-Lucking. I'm a freelancer and um, I do fundraising, management, all kinds of things. And I was really interested in what James said um, around the producers and facilitators and the need for those people to help young artists. Um, I was very lucky because I was of a generation when it was London Arts, as it used to be, and there was a dance management trainee scheme so that young people who wanted, or graduates, who wanted to support and work with artists trained alongside more experienced managers and producers and learnt that trade and there was a generation of us who are now sort of coming of age and, and working in more, at more senior levels but I don't see that generation below I don't know where younger producers and managers are um, they you know there used to be a, a bursary scheme to support us to learn those skills and um, I now with things like future jobs funds being cut things like that I don't know and um, where that comes and I think it ends up with a filtering of people into bigger organizations and um, I think that it can make people forget what it's like to be a grassroots independent artist making work that's really relevant to their local community and not just a glossy finished product that can tour. Great. So another call, another call on that, that theme around where is that next level, the next generation around producing and also the relationship between large, or, large organizations, small organizations, and then independent grassroots freelancers who sometimes are, can actually be the bridge between those two, those two environments. Thank you. My name is Rick Hall. I'm the director of um, programs at an organization called Ignite based in Nottingham, but I'm probably wearing my chair of Artswork hat um, for this session. Uh, Artswork's the bridge organization for the southeast. It, it seems to me there's a, there's a number of issues as you've, as you've tried to um, uh, elicit from this session. One is that uh, as far as arts in schools are concerned, I mean, obviously, we will await um, Darren Henley's um, report um, next week with, with, with a great deal of interest. But one of the problems, I think, is that um, the Secretary of State for Education has set up a kind of hierarchy of subjects, and the arts are clearly not mm -hmm. in the top rank, as it were, of um, the academic qualifications that he wants to, wants to promote. The other issue really, I suppose, relates to the role of the bridging organisations. This will emerge over three years, but one of the things that they will be doing is taking a more strategic overview of the relationships between national portfolio organisations and schools and other education providers. And that strategic overview will need necessarily to include <coughs> excuse me, the the whole structure and landscape of large and smaller organizations and their particular um, qualities and roles that they can play in meeting that, um, that need, as it were, to support not just young but emerging artists. Um, and finally, I think that we should acknowledge that the digital landscape is enabling far more people to become both consumers and producers at different times in their, if you like, daily lives. Um, one of the issues then will be about how we evaluate or assess some of the quality of that output. Um, but I'm not going to go too much detail okay. in, into that one. Just before we go to the next comment, um, can I get a show of hands of who has comments just so I can keep track there? And, okay, um, and here. I think one thing that I'd like to ask a little bit about, is there anyone from the education sector in the room at the moment? And I think, yeah, maybe, well, that's, a, yeah, a bridge. Yeah, a bridge. Well, let's define it. How do we define the education sector? Is it formal education, higher education, uh, 
you know, I, I think, but I think that's one of the things is there is a bit of a disconnect between the, the, the kind of arena of arts and culture and education. And I, and I think the bridge organizations are going to be vital to that. Um, but I think there, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to ask a question to the group. Uh, maybe I'll give one, one scenario and then I'll ask a question. I know, for example, we've had relationships with schools. And for some schools, they really see us as an arts organization coming into that school as a chance um, to take a break from their teaching. Um, and to have a bit of a distraction for their young people and are not necessarily concerned with the quality of the experience that those young people are having. And really, for some of those teachers that we've encountered, they're really like, okay, this is a chance for them to have a bit of fun um, and we can take a break from teaching. And really, there's a, not a really huge sense of expectation of what those young people will achieve in that context. And I find that quite disturbing, um, that they don't see it as a vital kind of complementary activity that connects with just wider growth as a young person. And so I'd like to ask, who, whose responsibility is it to build a stronger relationship between the arts and between education? Um, can I get a, just a, a little sense of that? Well, maybe I'm getting too solution-focused. But, uh, yeah, I'd like, that's one question I'd kind of ask, or maybe we can bring that into the next session. But who's, uh, let's come here. There's a comment here. I mean, just to your question, I think that's a, a really important question. Uh, and myself, my name's John Ritalik, and I'm... Uh, director of Outreach Department at the Bristol Old Vic, so big organization as opposed to Michael's small organization uh, uh, point there. And certainly right now we're working extraordinarily hard over months to be able to, by putting out some hundred invitations, uh, by March the 1st to get some, we hope, 30 teachers to have this conversation with them. So just getting access and to create a conversation with teachers, I think, is a quite a difficult thing to bring off. And I've gone into a lot of, uh, gone to a lot of trouble with one particular teacher to get that letter and get that time and get the arrangement, etc. absolutely right. It's very hard to have a collective conversation with teachers, point one. Just the other point I just wanted to say um, on big and small um, is that at Bristol Old Vic has had for a long time a exceptionally big young company little bit from the one postcode, but nevertheless a thriving and, and brilliant organization that has uh, events going on every single night of the week in the term time. A group of those came together uh, some year and a half ago and said to Emma Stenning and Tom Morris, the Bristol Ovic, actually we don't want to leave. Uh, we want to continue creating something as a young group. And that group, quite neglected through a whole year, was simply given the space of the Bristol Ovic a, created a show called Riot that went to uh, Edinburgh and has been quite a success, is now touring this year. And secondly, in a, they weren't actually paid anything, not saying they shouldn't have been. They received a little bit of bus fares help, I think, like £10 a day. Um, but a number of them have ended up working in arts jobs in the Bristol Vic or around or as a consequence of that. So the bigger the society, I think the more chance there is of tangential relationships being formed. And um, I think I'm learning, I've only been there a year myself, just how critical that is. I just would finish by saying that we've taken that Made in Bristol idea this year, expanded the access to it much more, much more widely, and we have 11 young, mostly 19-year-olds, but some a long-term unemployed of 23, 24 years old, working to become workshop leaders. And they're now working two full days a week under myself and the young company director and uh, are creating their own work, which, 
and there's a very nice thing going on there as to how much help they want. That is, we have to give them their collective head, yet at the same time be ready to, to give a steer when it's required. And we're just negotiating that at the moment. But I would say it's a very interesting experiment and experience. Comment here. One thing I want to say, I think there's a really important comment around <coughs> building relationships with teachers um, and building relationships between those art, between arts, arts organizations, teachers, where there really is a sense of camaraderie and a kind of shared passion. And I think while I, while I highlighted some of the challenges, I think there's also been, I'm sure everyone here has found that teacher in a school who is that ambassador, who is that person, who is a champion for the arts, who really gets the groups coming to see work, gets them off-site, and also um, and, and gets them and becomes that link. But, but I think I also really would like to hear something, and we have other comments coming. What about young people who are not in this spectrum, young people who are not um, within the formal education structure? Uh, what are the challenges there, and how do we reach those young people who may be outside of work and outside of formal education? Um, I know that's something that we've done a lot as an organization. Is that still a major challenge, you think, for, for the UK? Any comments? Uh, I was just responding to your earlier question yes. about relationships um, with teachers. My name's Tanya. I'm the head of the education program at Stratford Circus. Um, I think the landscape has really shifted over the last year, um, you know, with uh, local authorities making cuts to their advisory services. So where there used to be, for example, in Newham, an advisory service where I could link with teachers who are leading on different subject areas um, and then connect to teachers leading um, uh, in kind of creative arts um, subjects, uh, that relationship no longer exists. So that interim kind of, uh, or that kind of bridge to the to the school um, infrastructure doesn't exist. So I've been trying to sort of create those relationships um, myself and um, hold sort of networking meetings on a kind of termly basis. And that seems to be um, sort of moderately successful. Of course, you know, that's something that I'm doing kind of off our own back. We don't have any funding for it, but it's very important for us to maintain those kind of those relationships with teachers. But I think it's really tricky because without um, the buy-in from head teachers, teachers don't then get necessarily the time off to come and spend time with you and maybe do a free CPD session that you're offering in, it, in order to enable them to think about how they might um, build different sort of um, creative approaches into the curriculum. So it's something that we're really grappling with, but sort of trying to find um, ways of, of maintaining those relationships as best we can. Can. Great, thank you. Let's come. Uh, let's come here and then there. Yes. I, I just think going back to the the, co uh, the comment about kind of children not in education and, and employment. I think I've been kind of exploring quite a lot recently. Um, Can you just say schemes, your name and where you're from? Uh, sorry, Sarah McLaughlin from Let's Go Global. We're part of Trafford Council. Um, but we do community media projects across Greater Manchester. But I've been kind of trying to explore setups for allowing young people that maybe don't kind of get on with formal education to develop those kind of interest in art and, and interest in developing their own art form because personally I, I had no kind of interest in formal education didn't really get on with it and have found my own development mm. kind of as a as more more of a project manager than an artist but has been through kind of being allowed to try things out like Shiva said and kind of try it and fail and try it again and I just kind of am really interested in developing those spaces for young people and trying to get the but trying to get the funding to develop those spaces is quite a big challenge and just kind of how we can kind of adapt to the model so it's not all just formal project-based specific workshops kind of specific art forms but more just kind of giving yeah giving them that kind of creativity and that kind of variety of different art forms to see what what can develop I know that's one of the tensions that we face is that tension and balance between informal and formal for some young people if you create too formal a structure 
they're not going to come, they're not going to stay, they're going to become alienated. Um, and so how do, how do you create a, a, a journey for a young person where there is that balance between informality and formality? Mm-hmm. And I think that's something really important to look at if you're going to be accessing the widest possible uh, groups of young people. There were some other uh, comments here. Yes? Hello, I'm Jane Bryant from Artswork, um, which, as Rick said, is going to be one of the new bridge organisations. Artsworks worked particularly with young people at risk over the last 25 years. Um, but I was going to pick up on a couple of things. Um, uh, yes, it's true that the Secretary of State for Education um, uh, perhaps doesn't share the same vision for the arts and young people as many of us would like him to. Um, we have a number of things that we can draw on in the toolkit. Um, I don't want to be over-optimistic because I recognise the very challenging um, position that the arts are in in school at the moment. One is Ofsted will be inspecting the provision of arts and cultural work in schools. And um, one may or may not be a particular fan of Ofsted. However, I think it is helpful that Ofsted will be looking at the quality of arts and cultural provision as part of their examination of schools. There are another couple of tools. Um, the, arts, uh, the Arts Council has recently relaunched the ArtsMark, um, and schools can apply, as can indeed pupil referral units. And it's a, it's a revisioned scheme which really um, examines the quality of relationship between schools and arts and cultural providers. It's not as much the tick box exercise that it used to be. It really looks at the quality and depth of relationships between uh, schools and arts and cultural organisations, which I think is helpful. Um, and schools do continue to value certificates. Um, and they do like those, and I know that one can be quite cynical about them, but let's look at the good things that are in the new ArtsMark scheme. And the third thing, looking at young people both inside and outside formal education, the Arts Award is another toolkit, and I know that it's challenging to work with young people outside formal education um, and immediately talk about the Arts Award as an accredited scheme. You have to be building their trust first, as most people in the room will, will know. But it is another quite useful scheme in the toolkit of work to build leadership, cultural leadership, arts leadership in young people once you have begun to establish that sense of trust and working uh, with them. And I know there are a lot of people in the room who are uh, vastly experienced in working with Arts Award. So I just wanted to raise those as quite useful things, mm-hmm. but not belittling the challenge that we have in um, working with children and young people, both in and outside formal education. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So some kind of potential solutions and structures, but recognizing this challenge in terms of integrating them into practice. Absolutely. Yes. Hi, I'm Dan Alex from Arts Award. Um, I just like to. <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> I just like to agree with that comment. <laughs> um, no, I think what we've found is um, Arts Award is really useful in providing um, a framework for both um, arts organisations and schools to to work together, and it helps teachers really appreciate the work that the artists working with the young people are doing, and, and kind of finds that common ground and that common language for them to work together really. Okay, great. Now, I, we we're starting to move into solutions. I want to kind of challenge us to, to you know, which is very, it's a natural kind of inclination, but some of the things that we've highlighted as challenges, the balancing of informal and formal, 
the relationship between the education sector and the arts sector, the financial sustainability for young artists, the financial reality. We've got to invest and employ young people if they're going to, they, eventually they move from a, a point where they need to earn money to be sustainable, to become the companies like Gecko, who are fantastic. Um, and this is points that you've both, both raised in your presentations. Um, the need for the developing of the complementary positions in the arts, the producers, the other roles that, that round out the whole infrastructure. We need that next generation. Where is that next generation? What do we need to do to support that? Um, and then this, this balancing of, of participation, um, both informal and then the, the, the kind of national programs in terms of certification, which might potentially create better relationships between arts organizations and schools. What are we missing? What are the challenges we're missing? I want to make sure we get as much of a list. We have a new hand here. Yes. Um, I, I'd just like to say something about responsibility. I, mean, I think it's all our responsibility. I think we've, we're missing a trick with parents, and we have for years as a sector, mm. in terms of positioning the value that we bring as organisations working with schools. Oh, sorry, my name's Steve Moffat. I work for an organisation called The New Direction. I'm involved in the bridge for London. For nine years, I delivered an initiative called Creative Partnerships. It's now gone. But actually what it did is it gave power to schools to commission work, to co-commission work with artists and creative people. And I think schools will have power. They will have funding. They, they've got funding in a different way than they've ever had before. And what we've got to look at as, um, as schools as commissioners of work. But to do that, we have to look at and understand the education system and how it's changing. And I think as a sector, the art sector particularly has been very poor about it. What it's been doing is selling its products. We just recently did a consultation just before Christmas with young people who are pretty um, articulate about their experience in the arts. Um, young artists, young emerging artists. The thing that they said that moved them into what they're doing was a teacher, an inspiring teacher in school, signposted them to opportunities. Now, the one thing that we can change as organisations in terms of the funding that we have is that we can employ young people. And the way that we can do that is through schemes like apprenticeships. I think it's poor that there are only a 1,000 young people in arts um, in the cultural sector as apprenticeships. You look at other sectors, hairdressing, whatever, blah, 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 there are thousands of young people. We have not embraced that opportunity. Bearing in mind that to do an arts degree in London is now costing £27,000, we have to look, we have to take responsibility yeah. as a sector. I think that's an important point around if you have resources and you're, in, you're engaged with young people, you've got to invest not just in the infrastructure, but actually, coming back to your point, you've got to invest in young people. Mm. And I know, that, I know that that's something that's really important. I think today, I mean, one of my big challenges when I came to the State of the Arts last year, and I think there's some improvement this year, is that there was a real lack of representation of young people in the context like this. Um, and so it's good to see young people here on bursaries, but also there are young people who are being paid to be here um, through projects that we're running who are, gonna, who are participating as professional artists. Um, so I think that's something that's, that just keeps coming up as a, as a we need to input the investment in, in the infrastructure, but also in the practitioners. Well, one thing as well I forgot to say is there was a, a survey done, I think it was NFER did a survey about what parents want from schools. 85% of parents want their children at primary school to have a creative education. So actually, we have got the lobby, you know, but we're not using it. Great, so a point around family and, how, and parents and how does that integrate. I'm going to come here to Boston and then we'll come back around. 
Austin Williams, um, poet and MC. Um, basically, I just believe the problem with getting young people not in education, employment or training into the arts informally is that it involves a lot of um, trial and error, a lot of potential failure, and then going back and trying again. And under these austerity measures that the government are introducing, they just don't see the potential social, individual, emotional or um, possible economical benefits of getting young people into the arts. Um, it just doesn't seem like a risk they're willing to take, um, which is reasonable but debatable. Um, employing as well as investing in young people is something that is tangible but not enough of it's being done. Thank you, Boston. James, you had a comment. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on the thing about teachers. And um, I think, well, personally, I got involved because I had the most inspiring teacher at school. And it is so important to get, I mean, speaking from a dance perspective, getting dance specialist teachers, but in all art forms, having teachers who are specialist in their areas who can deliver, like, um, good education. And... It worries me with this move by the government to have, give schools more freedom and the arts kind of going down in importance in schools unless there are actually teachers who champion their art form and who can deliver e excellence in teaching, then it's just not going to happen. And there was um, also this move towards like this generic arts in schools having one, like maybe one head for the whole, for all arts in schools. Um, I think you're just going to lose out on this specialist training that each art form brings something different and you learn different skills from different art forms and it's important to really have those practitioners in schools and bring outside practitioners in who can develop and, you know, add inspiration to the children. Great. Yes, here and then there. Uh, it's just really building... Yeah, sorry, your name. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm Jane Sillis. I'm director of Engage, we're all about education and learning in galleries uh, across the UK. Really just picking up on your point, James, and the point that Steve just made, um, I think that probably what's crucial here is um, recognising the professional expertise of teachers and that many of them have trained as artistic practitioners and that what can work brilliantly is nurturing uh, that enthusiasm and talent and really building proper partnerships between artistic organisations and artists and teachers so that the best can happen. It sounds like Jane's had the most amazing experience at school by working with really impassioned and talented teachers. Yeah. Great. I want to keep keep us focused. I know I'm so tempted to try to solve all this, but what are what are other challenges? What are other? Yes. Yeah. You've been waiting for a moment, and then we'll here and then there, please. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go for it. Yeah. Thank you. Um, name, my name's please. Katie. I'm from Theatre Bristol. And I want to pick up on a point that Shiva mentioned and Boston just now about how artists work and how they want to try things out, like trial and error. And um, we're going through some organisational development. And one of the things that came up was that in the sort of science world, that the emphasis is put on that R&D process mm -hmm. and that actually drives the progress of that sector. And I think it's really important that that actually that's how the arts work as well and that young artists have that room to try things out and actually fail and actually the arts accepting that we need to be better at failing mm. and not putting that emphasis on return and statistics and mm. you know what those things that you're going to get out of it because sometimes it's not tangible. Mm. Great. So I think that's, that's a theme that's also come up around the need for artists and young artists to find their voice through experimentation through trial and error, through without always coming up with the perfect polished mm. production, that that's a really key to finding your creative mm. voice 
um, and so that we need to value R&D and I think that's a, that's a, there's a key message around that. Can I just say one thing on that? Yeah. I mean I've been really fortunate in that you know I've been I've made a work and it was successful and it went on but I've, it's got to a point where I'm, I'm scared to fail I've been given opportunities mm. um, and performances are going to happen of it but without the actual time to develop what I want to do I've kind of I've got to make a product and I don't have I pray to God I don't fail but you know what I mean you're so right you have to have that chance to play before you can put yourself out there I think and it could also be a quite stifling for young artists who does create their first piece to yeah. then not be able to have that second stage of exploration yeah. to find their you know their, their new voice potentially gentleman in the back uh, Paul Roberts, I'm chairing this afternoon's session, so I'm deeply grateful to you for being so active in <laughs> defining all the problems this morning, uh, and I've no doubt uh, that we will solve them all this afternoon. Excellent. Uh, but but uh, slightly more seriously, there's a, just a bit of a nuance about the relationship between, uh, I'm not sure if this terminology is quite right, but the artistic community and the schools community, mm. and I don't think what's quite coming through is the complexity and fragmentation uh, across that interface at the moment. We're living through a period where government policy is giving increased autonomy to individual schools and for many organisations uh, the challenge is uh, how to get a handle on, how to play into what is in fact 26,000 autonomous schools and many of the uh, intermediary structures that we may have used in the past, be they local authorities or art services, uh, uh, a range of those uh, intermediary structures, those have been swept away. And I think there's some really challenging questions about how we have the dialogue and have the contact and build up the relationships and trusts with so many individual schools. So it's a practical uh, uh, problem in terms of there being 26,000 of them. It's also a problem in that those head teachers, frankly, have a lot more uh, uh, power over what goes on in their schools. Uh, and some will choose to make this uh, uh, a priority. Uh, others will not at all. Uh, and so I think the moral challenge of ensuring uh, that some schools uh, don't simply ignore this is very great, um, particularly in some areas where there will be a, a whole range of other pressing concerns. Uh, and certainly a lot of my work has been done in areas of high deprivation uh, where I care passionately about the equality issues here. Yeah. Uh, and for me, it's about quality and equality. Um, and that's a trailer for this afternoon's session. Great. So a good little sneak preview of where we might go. And to continue that, let's pass to Keisha. Um, Keisha Thompson. I'm a poet, writer, facilitator. I'll be on the panel, as Baba just said, later on. But something that I wanted to raise is the fact that there is history behind the art that isn't always taught. When I was in primary school, I was taught about gospel music and steel pans and things like that, but it was only when I was taught about black history and the movement and the social and the political issues behind it that I realised that the art was actually a political instrument and it would actually change people's lives and change the world. And I think that it can become novel and children can think, oh, the song and, and the dance and that's it, but it's quite important in integral in the way that the world works and moves forward. So a comment about how art can sometimes be extracted from its context, from its cultural, social, political context, and what does it mean to, to see it more holistically? 
Um, yes, we see any new any new hands before I come back to. Yeah, I will. Then we'll. we'll it would be great to get the, the really you know everyone would be great to have you jump in here. So I don't want to start calling you like we're in a classroom setting, <laughs> but I might have to. All right, let, let's get some. Let's get someone new. I really can someone step forward because we really want to get the widest possible views in terms of the issues that we're raising for the second session. So let's, can we have someone new jump into the mix? Yes, thank you. Hi, Holly Donner from um, New Direction. I, I guess the thing that I'm interested in, and I know we're sort of opening up the challenges, but it's it's kind of really thinking... Uh, th th there is a kind of urgency about some of what we're talking about. I think, you know, referring to the kind of fragmentation in terms of the schools system, I think the kind of challenges that we have with what's going on in local authorities, I think, you know... And the crisis of youth unemployment. I mean, to me, there's a kind of sense that all of these things coming together is really going to mean that young people will potentially miss out on a creative childhood mm. and potentially miss out on opportunities to become the people that they should be able to become. And I, I guess it's kind of just, just I don't know, maintaining that sort of sense of, of, of the urgent moment and what do we, in all of our different ways, kind of bring to that. And I guess, you know, that, that would be the conversation I'd want to have with, you know, Michael Gove or, or whoever. It's kind of these, these are things that we need to bring a kind of sense of real, quick, meaningful solutions to. And I think, as kind of Steve was referring to, in, in the arts sector, there, 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 are, there are big things we can do, but there are also relatively small things like get involved in the arts award, like have, you know, trainees in our organizations that you know so just think about how we can make small changes that are kind of helping that's great I, I just want to underline that for a second kind of get a little heat check from the room because I think that's a, a word that kind of un can underpin everything I mean I think there's some burning there but is there is there is there a sense of urgency here do people feel that this is an urgent time is that can I can I get uh, some nods can I get some sounds yeah is this a time of urgency I think that's that's something that, that we're feeling from some of the young people that are talking, and, and I think it's important to kind of underline that, that this isn't just a rhetorical conversation, that this is on the ground, real lives, this is young people that everyone here interfaces with, and that there is a sense of urgency in this moment. I think that idea that some young people might miss a creative childhood is a very powerful statement, and it's quite a motivating statement to kind of activate us. Yeah, I'm just going to go for one more new voice, and then I'll, I will come back to you. Yes. I'm, I'm Hudson Lowe from Wigan Legend Culture Trust. Say um, that again. Hudson Lowe from Wigan Legend Culture Trust. Yeah. Um, I suppose what I suddenly kind of realised when you said that was um, if we are talking about young people being our future citizens, then it, we need to have a real clear understanding where art sits in culture now. Um, and the idea that um, if we don't give people enough tools to talk about what's going on in the world, whether that's Occupy London or the riots that happened last year, or anything like that, you know, we wouldn't have Shane Meadows making work that he does, we wouldn't have Jonathan Barnbrook creating um, logos Occupy London and the whole Occupy design movement, we wouldn't get that kind of creativity, because people wouldn't be able to use artistic and creative tools to talk about their real lives and what's going on today. Right, so art is a way to reflect the reality that we're facing at the moment. Let's come here now, please. Hello, um, uh, I've got a new point to make, even though I'm a, I'm a familiar voice. Um, I mean, uh, Shiva, I'd be really interested to know how, what your early journey uh, was to get to where you are now. But before we go on to that, I, uh, Artswork is working with a disabled young practitioner. 
um, who uh, attended university, is a, a film and uh, media artist, and he was talking about, uh, and he has to speak through an interpreter, he was talking about the additional challenges that young disabled practitioners uh, who want to make their, wo- their way in the world as self-employed entrepreneurs, the additional challenges disabled practitioners have in order to develop their practice. And that's a challenge for the afternoon, really, because um, I don't think we really um, are well-positioned to support the development of young disabled practitioners, Mm. not participants in projects. I'm talking about the creative force of young disabled practitioners and how we as a sector can better open up opportunities for their uh, creative development. And there's a challenge post-Olympics as well because he's emerged through particular projects and programs of the Cultural Olympiad and the Accentuate program in the southeast. How do we really build on that as a sector so that they can be equal? Somebody, somebody spoke about equality. How do we really enable them to develop their own creative voice? Great. I think so. Another, another challenge in a specific call. Uh, what, are the, what are the various layers that, that young artists face, whether it's class challenges... Absolutely issues around cultural background, issues around sexuality, disability, that there's, there's multiple layers happening sometimes, and, and how do we really create structures that engage and sustain those, those, those artistic presences? But do you want to address this idea a little bit about your journey? Um, does, do you want to connect to that? Oh, um, well, my journey to becoming a composer. Yeah, what, what specifically yeah, did you want to... Would, well, we learned about um, James, and the, the thing that made a difference to James was the school and the Now, I know how difficult it is, particularly for female practitioners, to to become composers. It's a very competitive world for everybody, and I'm really interested in your journey. Since we only have a little bit of time, could, could you maybe see if you could kind of bullet point or identify were there key moments or key people or key players or structures that supported you on that journey? Yeah, um, so I went um, to a normal state school. Um, So when I was there, I pretty much was there teaching myself what I wanted to do. No no resources or anything or any any encouragement or anything. Um, But then, yes, I, I went to Royal College of Music. I studied there with fantastic composer and um, and then I got my masters there as well so I got all my training eventually um, and that, that's now I'm here did you start <laughs> did you start as a self, as a kind of self learner though in your own did you have was that yeah. part of your beginning I think for me that's also really important is that particularly with young people in youth culture that it's important for young people to have access to the kind of institution and to have access to traditional structures, but also that young people are constantly creating their own cultural voice. Mm. You know, yeah. I think about hip-hop as a culture, turntablism. This was something that was, uh, that was innovated and created by young people in the Bronx um, without any institutional support or infrastructure. And that, that intersection between what young people create in their own cultural practice and then the institutions, and I think that's a really powerful dialogue that needs to happen, or even transforming of you know, young people's activity like gaming to see that as, as a potential artistic practice. You know, I think 
breaking down some of these harsh divisions between what is considered traditional or institutional arts and what is considered youth culture and, and young people's expression and realizing that some of that young people's expression maintains and has a legacy and becomes a canon in its own right um, and, and, has, and, and is an inherent discipline. Um, we're really quite, we're kind of running out of time here. We have about five minutes, so we'll just take maybe two more comments and then I'm going to try to summarize if I can. Just, just building on that, that point and your, your, what you've articulated as, as your journey, um, uh, that made, made me immediately think of Ken Robinson's The, the Element and how you find your element. Um, and I think that's one of the keys for working with young people, working with emerging artists, is to facilitate their choices and their options and their decision points so that they are either moving towards discovering not only what they're talented in uh, but also what they're excited by and what, what, their, um, uh, what their interests are. But also those decisions and choices that, if you like, veer them away from the things that are a distraction or a blockage to them finding their element. So. Great. Um, let's see, any last... I see one hand that hasn't spoke yet, so I'm going to prioritize a new voice. Jake from a younger theatre. I'll introduce you, sorry. Ah, thank you. Um, yes, my name's Jake from Younger Theatre. I'm also live blogging this session and following the Twitter feed. Someone's made a really interesting statement, which is that they guarantee that young people's work would be less interesting if it was well-funded. And that is something which is really interesting. What happens when you know, uh, the future artists, are, these emerging people, don't have the funds, and actually, what are we doing? What, what, I'm a young person, what am I doing? I'm setting up a website and trying to get young people to communicate with each other without funding. We don't get any funding. There's something really interesting, actually, when, when you just have no funding. And there was a really interesting Guardian blog about um, where the artist is just getting in a van and making work and touring around. And there's, there's lots of different sides to this argument. Mm -hmm. Can you just create work? Without, um, without funding, but also I really think it is important that the idea of failing, I think we really need to fail to learn, and we need support to fail, and where is the spaces to fail? I'm gonna, uh, we're about, uh, yeah, thank you. Jonesy, did you have something you wanted to say to that? No, just, um, just wanted to just add um, that hip hop grew out of nothing. <coughs> and I just wonder if, if what we're actually looking at is maybe the perfect environment for us to see a complete renaissance in the arts where young people are concerned. It hurts me to say this, but I completely agree with you when you're talking about the idea that actually some of the greatest art comes out of this type of situation. As an American, I'd like to challenge that idea. I come from a sector where there is very little support for the arts, and it really is not sustainable. I would say it, it, you see a lot of young people who just, it does not sustain a diverse practice. I mean, at the same time, it does create innovative entrepreneurial activity, so I think there's an important dialogue to happen, but I would never say, don't fund young people in the arts. I'm gonna try to wrap it up now. Um, it, with a, so, just a couple of things I'm gonna throw into the air, and please catch them. I'm sorry for people I couldn't come back to in your last comments, but please come back to the next session. But this tension between informal and formal, education relationships in the arts, um, the financial sustainability of young people, whether it's entrepreneurial activity or whether it's funded, the need for um, development of producers and the complementary roles, uh, certification and opportunities for young people to uh, get involved with kind of national structures. What are the role of, of family and parents? What role do they play? Where, you know, when are they in the dialogue? 
um, the need for risk and actual financial investment. And that it's not just about young people being participants, but them about being them being practicing artists and taking the risk to spend money on that. Um, we need inspiring mentors with specialist skills who, uh, who help make those life-changing moments. Um, we need to value R&D. We need to value process. We need, to, we need to take inspiration from science. It's not always about the final product. That that's where innovation is found. Um, we have to be aware of the fragmentation, um, the challenge of autonomy in schools that creates opportunities, but also real challenges nationally. We need to build trust between young people, arts organizations, practitioners, families. Um, and that really, you know, I want to underline that under this, there's a sense of urgency. And to me, that there's a statement around young people are at risk of not having um, sustained creativity in their childhoods. So this is, there, there's a real urgency to this issue, and I think that's, for me, what I think we should take into the next session is, is a sense of urgency. So on that note, I'd like to, to bring this to a close. Thank you very much for your contributions, and please to both of our panelists. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody, and um, welcome to the second session of Artists and the Imagination. Um, my name is Fiona Gasper, and I'm chairing this afternoon's session. And um, I suppose just by way of introduction, um, there were a, a couple of things that I picked up from this morning which just struck me as being relevant to this, so I'll just, just throw them in. And one was in my first session there was a, a, a debate, really quite polarisation in the room as to whether we lived in a world now where everybody could be called an artist, or whether artists were those who had um, obviously professional training and developed their skills but actually at the centre of an artist was their ideas and their imagination so half the room was about anybody can be an artist and the other half was actually no uh, being an artist is a very specialised um, occupation and it stems from ideas and imagination and the other thing I think that struck me this morning was that there was obviously a lot of talk about money, age of austerity, but education kept coming up time and time again. And a real, um, seemed to me, a, a few thoughts around that as we go down the road of, um, especially within education, having to pay for higher education and the fees that are coming up, the result of that is that courses become more streamlined and actually the end result of a course is more about a job especially when you're paying a lot of money to do a course, um, and that that in itself can be a real harm to the imaginations of artists of the future. So, we're lucky enough to have um, three great panel members, um, one artist filmmaker, a dancer who's now a producer, and Michael who works with artists of all sorts and facilitates work um, and beautiful work. Um, so we're going to hear from them first, then I'm just going to remind people about what came out of the morning session, and then hopefully we're going to open up a debate from the floor, um, which will be about um, the imagination and maybe the producer's role in safeguarding that imagination, enabling it to work at its best, and what we can do to, to ensure that. So I'd like to um, invite um, Clio and Michael. Michael, I'm sure people have heard of Art Angel, fantastic organisation um, that commissions and produces work of all sorts, really, visual work, performance. Michael works with filmmakers and broadcast media. Um, Clio Barnard's 
last piece of work perhaps that most people will know her from in this room, although you may know more than that, was The Arbor, a film about the life of Andrea Dunbar, who, um, a playwright who died at 29, um, but also made in a very specific way, where Clio um, interviewed relatives of Andrea's and people who lived on her estate in Bradford, and then the actors actually lip-synced over the, um, the dialogue. Is that right? So something about form as well as the subject there. So... Um, over to you two. Thank you, Fiona. Um, when uh, Janet Archer asked if um, I would uh, join a, a, a panel to talk about um, artists and the imagination in relation to Art Angel's work, I said I couldn't really imagine doing it without um, uh, an, an artist um, with whom we'd recently completed a work. Uh, so um, I asked Clio Barnard um, if we could do it together not quite knowing what that might mean. Um, so for the next eight minutes, we're just going to sort of, in a way, continue a conversation that we began four <laughs> years ago. And just to make sure we don't run over eight minutes, um, there's going to be some images that will uh, take exactly eight minutes. They will include um, some stills of the arbor, but also some stills of some other Art Angel projects, notably Jeremy Della's Battle of Orgreave, Michael Landy's Breakdown, and Penny Wilcox's The Margate Exodus, all of which Clio has chosen because in some way they um, uh, indicated the opportunity uh, that might be there to uh, raise the bar when it came to Clio thinking about what she might make uh, with Art Angel. Um, I mean, first of all, there was a sort of um, question this morning, an interesting question in the, in the first uh, panel from uh, an artist who asked, um, how can independent artists trust producing organisations? Um, and maybe we should start there. I mean, was it easy for you to feel that Art Angel could provide, a, let's say, a safe place for the development of the Arbor? Well, I think that question of trust is really important. It's crucial. And I suppose, um, yes, it, in some ways it was quite easy to trust Archangel because of the body of work that I, that I, I knew and um, Battle of Orgreave in particular and Michael Andy's Breakdown and House, you know, all of those works I think are important kind of turning points for those artists and also important pieces of work in themselves so, um, and I actually applied for the Archangel Open um, and so it felt in some ways, because of that previous work, and also because of the way the art, what the Art Angel Open asked of you in terms of what you submit to submit, it was um, it, it it felt easy to trust in, initially because it felt like Art Angel is an organisation that understands artists, and beyond that, it felt like there's this, I think often there's a dialogue between pieces of work. And I think there's a dialogue between the Arbor and probably Battle of Aubrey in particular. Um, and this, in this morning, the session I went to this morning, which was talking about giving artists space, in a way, I think what Art Angel does is give you kind of um, psychological space, in a way, in order to come up, it's in some senses, come up with ideas. Um, and, you know, I, I felt incredibly pleased that this idea found a home with our <coughs> I mean I suppose um, there's many different stages that we went through 
uh, in the very kind of embryonic idea that you presented, which changed dramatically, really, through R&D, development, um, the recording of what we called the audio screenplay, the creation of a shooting script for that, the pre-production phase, the production phase, the post-production phase. But always at the center of that was, I think, this kind of shared knowledge that we were dealing with real people and real people's lives, which I think is where it connects with Jeremy Deller and the Battle of Orgreave, Penny Wilcock, kind of corralling the different communities in Margate to it, perform the Book of Exodus. And actually even Michael Landy connecting with his own life uh, in destroying all of his possessions. I mean, do, do you think that in a way, but of course the artist has a responsibility to the producer, the producer has a responsibility to the artist, but together we had a responsibility to real people and very vulnerable people. And I'm wondering what kind of pressure that put on the collaboration. Well, the collaboration. Well, I mean, the the, the relationship between the, the producing organisation and the artist that we had to also safeguard something else. Well, yeah, maybe that that issue of trust was beyond the trust between the artist and the producing organisation. It was between, yeah, absolutely between between the community and the the, part of the people who you know. I interviewed absolutely. It was a. It, there had to be trust between all of us, really, and I suppose, in a way, that comes from a the, the willingness to take the risk to be open, and um, and I, I guess I feel very lucky that the participants trusted me, and that that you know somehow we got that. Say circle of trust, but it sounds a bit weird. <laughs> but somehow we, we managed to get some kind of circle of trust going for the harbour. Um, I mean, one of the things that, that seemed to have come up in the session this morning, which um, neither of us were at in the imagination, is that there was some, some the feeling of need, the feeling that there was an idea that couldn't quite be suppressed, that needed to come out. I mean, do you know where the need to make the arbour came within your? Uh, imagination. I think that um, I'm only just beginning to figure that out, and I think that that's probably right. That, um, and I've I know with other work that I've made, that is probably not until five years later, maybe <laughs> ten years later, sometimes that you understand what what the very deep, I suppose, personal impulse was that made that created that need to make it. But I think in the um, the impulse to begin, I think uh, the conscious impulse to begin is a diff is a different thing, and you know that you can identify that. I went into a bookshop and I picked up a book of Rita and Bob Two, and it had been reprinted with a piece of verbatim theatre that um, you know that I didn't know about, and I didn't know about verbatim theatre, but it related to a previous piece of work that I'd made. And that's the ver that's the sort of tangible mm. impulse. But I think that always there's a very deep impulse that I don't think you ever entirely understand. That in some ways, I mean, rather like Robert Wilson was talking about last night, that he knew that meeting these two teenage boys was somehow going to propel him into something that he couldn't quite define. And it's only, you know, 30, 40 years later that he can actually talk about what Christopher Knowles gave him was a sense of what was his words, you know, that, that seeing the whole, um, that actually in a way what we're talking about is a sort of unconscious process that by making a project is made conscious 
so that maybe you can understand something more about yourself and that the audiences watching can identify with what you found out and understanding something more about themselves. Well, I think one of the things that you and I started to talk about last week when we were thinking about coming here was the creative, the impulse to create and the impulse to destroy. And I think in some ways, with the Arbor may have had... You know, Andrea was an artist who created, but she also destroyed, in that she... She was very self-destructive, and she was also destructive towards her her children. And there were kind of that had very long-reaching uh, effects. And I and I think that 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 I guess is an important question, and it and it fascinates me. And um, yeah, anyway, I could I could go on. <laughs> I mean, I suppose there's, you know, there's a link between the the creative impulse, the self-destructive urge the imagination, memory, and all, all of those things. Um, and I'm not sure how, we want, how abstract we want to get, or whether people might want to sort of, um, you know, kind of root it into projects, into kind of talking about the relationship between producer and, and artist. I mean, I have to say, you know, that um, it's, having worked in the, the, the way that we have done at Art Angel for 20 years, I no longer kind of um, uh, worry too much about the relationship between the producer and the artist because it's different in every project. It's completely different. Um, I mean, actually, this was something that was, was, was mentioned this morning when Alex Poots and Jorn Weisbrot were, were speaking, that actually, you know, there's no template in these projects. And one of the scary things, I think, is this sense that you have to go into the, the beginning of each project pretending you know nothing. You know, to go in with a blank sheet of paper because you can't really take the experiences from one project to learn from to another because they're going to be different. And I think that that, that sort of sense that so you go in with this with a strong sense of faith and a strong sense of doubt as well that it might happen. And I think probably both of us during the period of the Arbor, without maybe being explicit with one another, went through huge you know moments of faith and doubt, which were kind of mingled. Is it is it possible to do this? And that's true with every art angel project, I think. And maybe true with every project that an artist undertakes of scale, ambition, uh, a project which, for you and for art angel, is something that none of us had any experience with before. You know, whether it's important to actually have to go through that sort of long period of doubt where you feel it's impossible. Well, there was a point where it didn't seem as though it was, wasn't going to happen. It was all going to fall apart. Um, it did seem as though it wasn't it wasn't going to get made, and um, I think uh, well I think I dealt with that by retreating <laughs> and trying to think of all kinds of other ways that I could get it out there if if, if it did fall apart and um, and I don't quite know what, and I went off and I I kind of drew storyboards actually I carried on work, working on it and I'm not quite sure what you went off and did but well I think you <laughs> do you work yourself out of the dark hole that some spanner in the works has thrown at you, mm. you know, some disappointment that actually turns into an opportunity to do it differently uh, and actually in a way what you end up with is the thing that you needed to end up with despite all the pitfalls along the way and that's definitely eight minutes because okay. <laughs> it stopped <laughs> and do you want to leave it there? yeah yeah because okay. it's eight minutes thank you both very much um We'll move on to our, our next speaker then, Emma Gladson. Emma is um, programmer and producer at Sadler's Wells, but um, certainly formerly a dancer, now a producer, and started off as co-director and co-founder of AMP, mm. Adventures in Motion Pictures, <coughs> part of the Chumleys, assistant director at the place, 
and now Sadler's Wells for the last seven years. Yeah. So, um, you know, really part of Sadler's Wells rise to being the fantastic it organi- organisation it is now. So, um, over to you. I wonder if you put the vague on again so <laughs> we can time, <laughs> time, time since I don't have any pictures. Um, we can, it's okay. Well, you can time oh. me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, thank you. Um, we were asked uh, several questions, far too many questions I thought to be able to answer. So I've picked four that I thought would be good to answer today. Um, and I thought I'd give you the answers first. And the answers to them are love, yes, practicing our freedom and being there. Um, here are the questions. Um, the first one was, why do artists make work? Um, I think Claire has already touched on one of them, which is a, a need. I think most often in my work with the choreographers and the artists I work with, it's often that they can't see what they want to see out there. And so they want to make it. And that's something which I think keeps it live and current and as each, each generation brings. The other urge is that they see work and they think, I could do that and I could do it better. So, um, but I did actually decide to ask various artists what they thought. And the sculptor I spoke to said, only I can reveal the shapes I see in things. The choreographer said, ideas come to me and I have to realise them. If I try to think of any, I can't which I think touches on that instinctive thing when you don't even know exactly why you might make something. The lighting designer I spoke to said, to avoid doing any one of those jobs that doesn't encourage you to have a soul. It's a choice for those of us who are lucky enough to have a choice. And the filmmaker said to me, when I look at the work of Rothko, I think that even if he was a manic depressive, his vast paintings are pools of love. When I watch video of Forsyth improvise or a child dance instinctively, what they communicate to me is love. Minimal Beckett is about core love. Expansive Creed is about fun love. Dancing is love of life. Exercise is loving being alive. Helping artists make work is because you love, Emma. I hope that your talk is for hippies. (laughs) (laughs) Super Valentine Day theme there. (laughs) So that was the first question, and the answer was love. The second one is, is it the same across the art forms? Um... And I thought what all these artists share is they've got the courage to explore and it's that whole idea of not knowing where you're going, about getting lost and I think as producers it's one of our big roles is to help them get lost. But in terms of the different art forms I sort of wondered the work that I do is so full of working with people and lots of collaborators and designers and dancers and lots and lots of people and I wondered well if you were a writer you know, how different would it be if you were someone that was working on, on your own Um, And this weekend, in the paper, there was a quote by Henry James. It says, We work in the dark. We do what we can. We give what we have. Our doubt is our passion, and our passion is our task. The rest is the madness of art. I just thought it was fantastic and sort of said what all the other artists had just been saying. Question three was, what was the role of the producer? Um... I think, as Michael says, it, it's so different every time we do anything. It, it's, it is very unknown each time. I produce more than shows because I run the research program at the Wells, and um, we've got a fantastic scheme that's called the Gerwood Studio. We just started something called Summer University last year, which I love because it's the same group of 15 young artists and performers, including Hetan Patel, who was speaking this morning, and that they're coming um, for a fortnight over four years. So it's the same group of people that are coming. 
And uh, one of the things that came up from this morning was that idea not only of nurturing imaginations from early on, but over the long term. So for me, it's a really exciting project because it, it extends over that period. But there's a wonderful guy who came in to speak. He's called Rudy Lemons. He's a writer and a dramaturg, and um, he is the professor of social theory at Leuven in Holland. And he came in to talk, and he talked about this phrase um, which the, the artist really picked up on, which was practicing their freedom. And Vicky, um, one of the uh, choreographers on the course, said that now whenever anybody asks her what she does, she says, I practice my freedom. Um, and I just thought it was one of our roles um, was to help them do that, along with give them support or provide um, thoughts for collaborators or resources to talk to them about ideas or find money or partnerships and gigs, whatever else we might do, connect them into networks they might know about. I thought it was a combination of sailing into the unknown with them, getting lost, um, and, and practicing our freedoms together. And I just want to mention one project when I felt as a producer I'd done that a lot, which was um, something I did a few years ago for the youngest audience I've ever worked for. Um, it's a project called Oogly Boogly. It was with a theatre artist called Guy Dartnell. Um, and Guy had devised a process of, of making material, generating material with actors improvising. Um, he'd, done this, he'd done this game with the daughter of Tom Morris, the theatre director who's now running Bristol Old Vic, um, and Tom had wondered where Guy was, and he, he went an, an hour later, suddenly realised that Guy wasn't around, and ni neither was his little daughter. And Guy was doing this kind of copying, mimicking game, and had been doing it for an hour with Hannah, who was then about a year old. And it was a combination for me of Guy coming up with this idea of devising movement, Tom wondering, a very strange idea about whether you could make it into a show, and me having a bit of time um, freelancing while still being at a theatre, so I had a venue and I was trying to put together a programme of work for children, which I'm very passionate about trying to do interesting contemporary works for children and the combination meant that we tried out some time together and it was one of those things where we didn't know if it was possible like what age could you start at if you tried with kids at six months if they couldn't really move anywhere how much fun was it if you tried with kids of three years I remember one little girl coming in and she said I've got new shoes and we were like she can talk you know it was just really shocking so we found out the age was like 12 to 18 months which was once they could move but before they could talk how many babies? The first week we did, Guy was working with eight babies on his own and we suddenly realised that maybe it was too many. Um, so we ended up getting in four performers to four babies. How long was it? Best time was about 45 minutes. What kind of space could it be? So when we first did it, we set up um, a kind of like a kind of boxing ring with tables around it and dumped the babies in the middle and they kept going, wanting to go back to their parents and we thought, no, that doesn't work and we lowered it to sandbags and then they kept climbing over the sandbags and then in the end when we did it in an inflatable space there was just a painted area and we asked the parents to sit on the red bit and the babies played on the white bit but there wasn't any division by the end and it just turned into a, be a fantastic project and one that we took uh, internationally. It's been franchised to Sweden. It's going to be franchised to France. And we did it in the most deprived area of a Shaw Stark uh, group in Nottingham. And we took it to the Melbourne International Festival. But my point is that it was one of those ones where we just... It wasn't only... Um, had we never worked with children before, but we didn't actually know if it was possible to do it. And it was, for me, a good example of... of journeying on that into that unknown but doing it together and coming to a new land that was a very enjoyable one um 
And my last one, my last question was just, do artists need producers to realise their ambitions? And I wondered if anyone here thought I was going to say no to that question. <laughs> um, I think what I would like to say is that there are many artists who are doing very fine things without producers, and I would say Andy Field at Voice Fringe and Claude Ensemble are two immediate ones. Claude Ensemble do a fantastic season called Performing Medicine, and you know, there are plenty of artists who are doing fantastic things without producers. But I do feel very strongly that where we work is in part of the creative chain, and I think that is connecting the artists with their audience. And I see our role really in the middle of that chain. And neither side necessarily sees the bigger picture. But I think it's arguably better for the artist and certainly better for the audience if they don't see or know all the steps that go from that initial dreaming of an idea into the delivery of it to be read and, uh, by people. And I think our role is to be as ambitious as we can, both for artists and for audience and audiences. And it's something I, I think it would be nice to talk about a bit more uh, later. I just want to finish off with the story of this guy, Angelo Dundee, who died uh, earlier this month at the age of 90. He trained 15 world champion boxers, including Muhammad Ali. Um, Ali said, he let me be exactly who I wanted to be, and he was loyal. That's the reason I love Angelo. And Angelo himself, who you might have heard on the radio, there was a bit of clip of him, totally kind of chipper, sort of just two weeks before he died. Uh, you know, like those conductors who just, you know, last until they're 110 because they just love what they're doing. But he says, this was a quote, he said, when you use the word trainer, and I would replace that with producer, when you use the word trainer, it's a word that means you've got to help your fighter not only in the ring, but a lot of other things as well, he said. It's more than just working the corner or wrapping his hands. You have to be a mentor for everything. And he insisted his, his fighters were polite to everyone. So I don't know if I can try that with some of the artists I work with. But anyway, um, and he once told George Foreman not to chew gum when he was being interviewed. My last thing is that he said he let Ali believe that he came up with all the good ideas. And uh, he said, I was there for him. And I think that says it. That's the key for me about good producing. It's how we help artists with their imaginations. It's to be there for them with love to help them practice their freedom with articulacy and to sail into the unknown proudly together. Uh, be there for them. Thank you. So, um, yes, in the grey jumper. Hi, um, I'm an artist and I've had both uh, positive and, and negative experiences uh, working with producers and, you know, the, the, the positive ones are really enriching and, and I guess but in, invariably you learn more from, from, these, from the negative experiences and, and in terms of the negative experience I, I kind of feel like it was uh, because of a breakdown in communication I felt like it was difficult to uh, work with a particular producer to, um, to be understood uh, in terms of uh, the work or what I would like to do and, and I felt as though there was a, another a, a, an agenda from, from the producing organisation which you know, was almost wanting my work to fit into a, a wider agenda of that organisation. I, I just wondered, as a as a question uh, for both Michael and Emma, as to um, whether you've had negative experiences in working with uh, w with artists and, and, and why that and, and why those come about, or um, you know, as as a way that we can kind of learn from it, or kind of uh, I don't know. Mm. I think it's trust or the lack of it that's the, always the key there and um, I remember Michael saying ages 
ago to me that he didn't work with people he didn't like. <laughs> you know, life was too short. <laughs> and um, and I find it an interesting thing because I, I, you know, we're, you know, I don't know how many shows we had on last year, 90, I don't know, there's just tons of, you know, it's a rolling programming around the year theatre with three theatres to programme and there's a lot of people coming through and it, it it's an interesting it's an interesting thing about the choices that you make then about what to actually produce rather than just a programme or to commission and I, I think the times when it doesn't work is when there's not a trust about your intentions and in a big house like I'm working now we're often seen as you know there's there's a projection of, of, of money grabbing going on for example in a bigger show which things like that when you there are suspicions about how you're working and why you're working and I think those are something that I've learnt to avoid working with those people if it's not a good connection it's too it's too hard work the other thing is I've learnt really on early on is to do things like crediting or you know it's to get out early as you can some of those things that might cause um discomfort and I had it on a big project that I was doing last year when some people contributed into the narrative of a story and wanted to be credited with a kind of um, scenario credit and uh, actually we'd all had a big week of research together bashing it all out together and I couldn't have told any of ideas of the design or the story it had been so convoluted everyone had chipped in and that was the situation when I was like when I said no that's not you know there are edges here and everybody has their particular roles but I felt like we had to be really clear early on about what those sorts of definitions are so that things are um, roles are respected I suppose and trust is established and I think if it's not it's extremely it's extremely hard Any observations from you Michael on when things go wrong between producer and artist and trust breaks down? It, I mean we've been very lucky that that hasn't by and large happened uh, really uh, <coughs> And we, we retain very strong, positive relationships with the artists we've completed projects with. Um, it's a long what term... What about the ones that you didn't complete projects with? Well, um, that actually has only happened, I think, in 20 years on two occasions. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I'm, and in thinking about why that was, and I think it's true that not every artist um, uh, relishes the very collaborative, open mm-hmm. process that is what Art Angel offers. And I completely respect artists. In fact, in both cases, those artists went on to complete the works, but in a very different way, in a way that was... Um, I think there's a kind of... I don't know what you feel about this, Claire, but there's a, there's a, there's a way in which... To do with control, and uh, I'm, there's a certain point in which you don't... That, 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 um, I feel that there isn't very much um, atmosphere of control in the projects that we make. And as soon as that happens, uh, it, it, that kind of, in a way, destroys the sort of collaborative process. I mean, obviously, I don't know what I'm, what I'm saying, but I think in both the cases where we failed to complete a project, it was because the artists wanted to do it in their own way and with complete control which, you know, I, I respect that not everyone wants to work in this way. Uh, and there are many very successful examples of artist projects where artists are their own producers. Mm. You know, I mean, Bob Wilson was his own producer throughout the 60s and 70s. You know, and there's no one who could have produced Ice Down on the Beach apart from Bob Wilson. He rented the Metropolitan Opera House in 1976 and did it his way. He <laughs> needed that control. You know. um, 
Lady in the red hairband, did you have your arm up? Um, I'm Angela Kennedy, an artist, a uh, performance installation artist. Uh, yeah, I think the process of um, sharing your ideas and your artwork with somebody else, it's a very, very delicate process. <laughs> and uh, I haven't done it very often because I feel it's a bit like what you were saying about control and that you, um, uh, art for me, it's about part of myself. And as that flourishes, as it is a process, it's really important that that's authentic. Um, and so having a relationship with someone where you would share that real intimacy of that process, it would have to be a really, really trusting, safe relationship where you feel you could, you could really say, actually, things are going wrong or this is not working. And to my knowledge, there's not many other partnerships around that would be willing, I think, to go that way, to have that doubt together and to share that journey together. Or I don't know of many. Is that an art form thing? Can I just ask you what, what art you make? Uh, performance and installation. So right. I used to be in the dance world and now I'm in the visual arts kind of performance world. Um, <coughs> certainly uh, now as a more mature artist and trying to find places to put my work and I felt that the last year I just needed to find those places myself so I can be really authentic with that, with those ideas and have control of them. So I think it's a very delicate, it's a very delicate process. In the green scarf, did you have your hand? Hi, I'm Sharnid from Gulbenkian Foundation. I'm finding this a tremendously energising and optimistic session. Um, but, um, and I, I think that the way that those two organisations, Art Angels and Sadler's Wells, have grown are, are they are beacons mm -hmm. of pioneering work. And I can think of other beacons around the country, across the art, form, art, art world too. But in the context of today's discussions, when we're talking about tight money and fitting things into agendas, and that discussion we had with Arlene where we all had to say whether we thought television should chase ratings or not... You know, that, that awful debate and the sort of digitising of the art and the, that, those things about pop, about pop, Michael's laughing, about, about popularising. How do we get your amazingly careful ethos, and that is the originality of artists, out into the wider world? I think you've made enormous strides for the art world, not just for your own organisations. But how do we get from this careful, nurturing, original process, which is the lifeblood of the arts, into that wider arena? I, I mean, I, from my um, perspective, it seems to me that the producer role, actually, has only really come into being so strongly as it is now in the last sort of 15 years. I think there were Producers, but it wasn't. There weren't. Um, <coughs> see Barbara frowning at me. Do you think that's not right? I mean, it seems to me that, that, that the notion of a producer is much more commonplace now than it was 15 years ago. I don't know. And with that must come um, all those those qualities we talked about at the beginning to do with trust, to do with the sort of psychological space that working with Michael has given you to think things through, to do with, I think, what you described, Emma, I haven't got my glasses, so releasing our freedoms, but that again is about space, isn't it? But those, as, as, as producing has become more of a, I don't know how to articulate it, but certainly 15 years ago, I don't think I heard the word producer in the same way as it is now. And as we talk about it more as a profession, if you like, as an expertise, as an area of work, 
these are the sorts of things and it's conversations like this that are able to highlight those skills and qualities that people really need because actually not everybody can be a producer not everybody is brave enough to let things go off in all directions um, without pulling it back you know that that's quite a you have to be a particular type of person to do that to have the conversation with an artist that you don't want to immediately close down because you want to get it into a space at a certain time for a certain number of people for a certain amount of money. So there are some some great qualities in that. And I, and I wonder whether conversations like this go some way towards helping that. I mean, I, I don't know. Do you see... I find it difficult because, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've been conscious of working with artists in the way that I still work with artists for more than 30 years. And I couldn't imagine doing it in any other way. Uh, I mean, obviously, I've learned some things during that time, but actually, um, uh, you know, by and large, you do have to start from a position of naivety. Um, and uh, you know, Art Angel actually, James and I began our work in in a recession in the early nineties. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't think one can become too preoccupied uh, with uh, prevailing winds. I think you have to do what you do and continue doing what you do. And not say, you know, what is austerity art angel? No, but I don't think. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. But that's I, not, really I don't think that's what that's not that's not what you're saying, really, is it? In a way, it, what it makes me realise is how much time we spend, like, certainly with with my research program, helping artists think imaginatively and how to provoke and give them fuel to go out and survive. And um, and it, it is an interesting thought about how to do it to colleagues or young younger producers coming through or how, how we how we share what we've learned you know for however long it might have been how we actually distribute that and some of that is through having interns come in or claw fellows or whatever all those other sort of schemes that there are now but it's so it's two things one is um and what did you say how you said that psychological space providing psychological space and i think the longer i do this the more i feel it is about psychology and how you, how empathetic you are, how you understand people, mm-hmm. and that ha- that cultural dating I was talking about, like not only different art forms, but who you think might get on, who you think mm-hmm. might work, and you could introduce and plug together, and and that's something quite hard to learn because I think that's in character, that's characters of what sorts of people we are that enjoy it. You know, the, the thing about not being artists is that I know I am a particular person that really enjoys making, and I don't know what I'd do if I wasn't doing what I. Do. you know it's not the same as the artist originating that idea and having to get that thing out but it, it is a huge satisfaction from making things happen and 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 that, uh, that's hard to train or hard to teach I think a lot of it is kind of character but it is an interesting idea because there are so many more people doing it now and I think in terms of the imagination we have a huge amount of I mean, certainly, I'm lucky enough to be in a building where I've got resources, I've got space, I've got studios I can give. There's, you know, absolutely, which is another kind of trust that absolutely lets us get on and not looking over our shoulder and signing off every invoice or whatever it is. Yeah, huge, huge difference that makes. But that's different from helping other people sharing in what I've found to be a good model of practice or we've developed over the years. I think it is an interesting thought about how to make it happen because we can help reach a lot, a lot of artists who are out there in more isolated positions, I suppose, and make art happen when we're doing our job well. Okay, so I have to round it up now. Um, big thanks to Clio, Michael and Emma. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and thank you to you.
This podcast is produced by Arts Council England. For more content like this, visit artscouncil.org.uk or soundcloud.com forward slash Arts Council England.